Well, we have already been blessed to consider God's truth to us this morning through song. What a joy to consider His love through the gospel to us and that call that it has on our lives. But as we look to the Word this morning, we need God's continual help. I need that help as I seek to bring this passage before us, and and our spirits need that help as He seeks to encourage us and convict us by His Word. So as we come to the Word this morning, let's, let's pause and let's ask His help this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice that you have given for us. We thank you for the love that you have poured out for us on the cross, that we can come this morning as children of God, praising you for that love and how it has impacted our lives. And now as we look to your word, we ask that you would continue to work in our hearts as we consider the love that you poured out for your own. Lord, I pray that these words would have their effect on our hearts, that it would cause us to rejoice for those of us who know you as Savior, that it would convict maybe those who do not know you, that they might see their need for faith in Christ. And that it would call us to action, that you would use your words to sanctify our hearts this morning as we strive to live for you day in and day out, to serve you as our Lord and Savior. So be with us now as we spend this time in your word, and may you be glorified by all that we do this day. It's in your name I pray. Amen. In 1938, Russell and Darlene Deibler arrived in what is present-day Indonesia on their first wedding anniversary. Darlene was 21 years old. Their desire was to share the gospel with some of the most remote people in the inner rugged mountain valleys of the Netherlands East Indies. Their desire was fraught with trial and sickness and pain as they battled heat poor sanitary conditions, and a slew of jungle diseases. Russell nearly lost his life in the initial survey trip. Yet these trials were compounded when in 1942 the island was invaded by the Japanese. Darlene and Russell were separated and placed in different prisoner of war camps. Darlene suffered many unspeakable horrors, including seeing Mr. Yamaji, the commander of her prisoner of war camp, nearly beat someone to death. She suffered from sicknesses such as beriberi and dysentery. And in 1943, Darlene was informed that three months previous, her husband Russell had died in in a separate prisoner of war camp. She hadn't heard from him in some time, and she'd been praying for his safety and for the chance that they might meet again sometime soon. And now, he was gone. In the midst of her grief, Darlene was informed that Mr. Yamaji wanted to see her in his office. And as Mr. Yamaji spoke with Darlene about her husband's death, Darlene told him that she did not grieve without hope. 
and she proceeded to share the gospel with him. And his life was forever changed. Years later, Mr. Yamaji, in prison for warm crimes committed, was known to share the gospel with his inmates. Darlene was eventually liberated and returned to the United States in 1945. She remarried and returned with her husband to serve as missionaries to the same people that her and Russell had originally gone to serve years before. And throughout her faithfulness, many came to Christ. Now, as we hear this story this morning, we might ask the question, why on earth would Darlene do such a thing? Why would she share the gospel with a cruel captor like Mr. Yamaji? And why, after all the suffering that she had gone through on these islands, upon returning to the U.S., would she even dream of going back there? Well, the answer is because she knew her Savior, a Savior who loves exceedingly. And she was imitating her Savior's love. This morning, we're going to look at John chapter 13. And in John chapter 13, Jesus demonstrates his love for his people through the washing of his disciples' feet. But before we get into that story, John uh, introduces us to uh, a section of Scripture here, John chapter 13 through 17, Jesus' last discourse, his last chance to meet with his disciples, to talk with them. This is the last night of Jesus' life before he dies on the cross the next day. And so John introduces us to these uh, last chapters and specifically to this, this act of love, this washing of the disciples' feet in the first three verses of John chapter 13. We read beginning in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... When the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. As Jesus embarks on these last hours of his life, John tells us that Jesus knew his hour had come. Now, as, as uh, Dr. Pratt mentioned last week in his sermon from John chapter 8, this is not a, a phrase that is foreign to us. In fact, John uses this reference to the hour throughout the book of John. Um, examples such as in his first miracle, uh, when uh, Jesus' mother tells him he needs to do something about the wine running out in the wedding. Jesus says, my hour hasn't come. There's numerous times throughout uh, the book of John where angry crowds are, are ready to, uh, to kill or even arrest Jesus, and somehow he always manages to sneak away. And the reason why John tells us is because his hour has not yet come. So what is this speaking of? What hour are we talking about here? Well, we're speaking here of the hour of Jesus' suffering and death for our sins, of being lifted up on the cross 
and ultimately through being the single sacrifice in saving us from our sins, rising again and being seated at the right hand of the Father, it is His hour of being glorified. But we see here that Jesus knew He was going to die. In fact, as he was making this trip into Jerusalem, for the last time he knew he was going to die. Matthew tells us this in Matthew 16, verse 21, as as Jesus began this final journey, Jesus began to show his disciples how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus knew his hour had come his hour to suffer for our sins. This text also tells us that Jesus knew that he would be betrayed and that his betrayer was sitting in the very room that Jesus was sitting in that evening. But it also tells us that Jesus knew that this was God the Father's plan. And beyond that, as we look in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, Jesus knew that it was the Father's plan. He also knew that he was in complete control. The Father had given all things into his hands. The actions that we're going to see over the next couple chapters in the book of John are not actions that are forced upon Jesus. He's not a character in a story that's careening out of control. Jesus is in complete control. He has complete authority over the situation, and he moves ahead. This text tells us that he loved his own. He loved them to the end. As we think about that, he loves his own. Well, we know that Jesus came into the world because he so loved the world. So we can see from the text of Scripture that Jesus loves the entire world, yet John tells us that the actions that we'll see here in John 13 are motivated by his love for his own. Who are his own? Well, in a few short chapters later, as Jesus is praying to the Father, he prays in John 17, 9, not for the world, Jesus says, I don't pray for the world, but I pray for those whom you, the Father, have given to me. Speaking of those who, by the grace of God, have come to understand the gospel and to place their faith and trust in him. These are Jesus' people. These are his own. And in the immediate context of that evening, it were the disciples sitting there in the room with him. And as that prayer that Jesus prays in John 17 continues, it tells us that not only would those people be his own, but those who through their testimony would come to Christ are also his people. And so we can rejoice that we are also, if we have trusted in Christ through the testimony of these people, we are also his own. It tells us that he loved his own to the end. The Greek phrase here could mean to the end of his life, which certainly is the case as Jesus will die on the cross for their sins the next day. But it can also mean to love absolutely, to love to the uttermost with all of his capabilities. And I certainly think that is the case here as we see this absolute love Jesus has for his own through the washing of his disciples' feet. 
Now, some just historical background, and then we'll dive into verse 4 here and read the accounts. We have to understand washing of the disciples' feet. Um, Why is this even so important? Well, in that day and age, the major means of transportation is walking. And the major footwear of that day was sandals, which means apparently I'm in the wrong time in history. (laughs) So if you're walking a long ways with only sandals on your feet, your feet get sweaty and dirty and gross. And so it was customary when you were to walk into someone's house, there was typically water set aside for you to wash your feet. And in certain situations, there might be a slave or a servant there who would wash your feet for you. But this was a very lowly task. In fact, it was so low to be called to wash someone's feet that not even a Jewish servant could do that. It was beneath them. Only the Gentile slaves could wash someone's feet. And yet Jesus washes his disciples' feet as they gather for this meal. No doubt it has been put together in haste. There must have been, in in the haste of preparation, no water set out to wash their feet. And so they're reclining at the table here, enjoying the Last Supper with dirty feet. And the text tells us, beginning in verse 4, that Jesus rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This act of complete humility on Jesus' part demonstrates his love for his own for his disciples, and his love for us, his people today. And that love is demonstrated, I think, in three ways here. So there's three points that I want us to look at this morning from this passage. First, his love cleanses us from sin. Second, his love calls us to fight sin and to pursue faithful living. And thirdly, his love calls us to follow his example of sacrificial love for others. Well, let's consider the first point here this morning, that His love cleanses us from sin. Namely, that Jesus' humble act of washing His disciples' feet points to the cleansing that they will receive in His death on the cross. And we see this in Jesus' interaction with Peter in the midst of this foot-washing event. And we see this beginning in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I want you to imagine that you have invited a very special guest to your house for dinner. But before they can sit at the table and eat that dinner, you ask them to clean all the dirty toilets in your house. That's a little bit possibly what the disciples are feeling right now as Jesus is washing their feet. 
And it isn't just because Jesus is a highly regarded guest or a really important teacher. Certainly he is that. He certainly is their teacher and they should, and he should not be stooping down to wash their feet. But it is more striking that Jesus does this because he is God. He is their Messiah. And in fact, as Paul referenced this morning in in the reading from Luke 22, what, what he was talking about in Luke 22 is happening in the very same room as this, this account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. They're fighting over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. They say, listen, Jesus is our king. He is the king of David. We're in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. He is going to reestablish his throne. He is going to reign, and we kind of hope we might get to reign next to him. We are going to seat, be seated on thrones with him, and, and, and they're fighting over who's going to be the greatest. And in the midst of this argument... Jesus condescends to wash their feet. Now, while all the disciples are probably troubled by Jesus' actions here, Peter, good old Peter, speaks up and says something about it. And Jesus' answer to him shows Peter that there's more than what meets the eye here. There's some spiritual significance to what I'm doing here. And we see that in the fact that, that Jesus tells him, you don't understand now, but you will afterward. And we can ask the question, after what? Well, it's after his death and resurrection. After Jesus is humbling himself to die on the cross for their sins. So I want us to think about this. Uh, Paul talks about this to the, in his letter to the Philippians Beginning in chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, who was God himself, the creator of this world, humbled himself to become a man. And here, as a man, he humbles himself further by serving his disciples and washes their feet, one of the most lowly tasks he could do. But Paul does not stop there with the Philippians. He says in verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus is telling Peter here, you don't understand now, I understand that, but you will understand later that I, though am God, have humbled myself to become man. And though I have humbled myself now to wash your feet, this is all pointing to where I will humble myself and die on the cross for your sins. That there is, this is pointing to the cleansing of your sins that you will find in my death on the cross. Peter obviously doesn't understand this and refuses to let Jesus wash his feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. You don't belong to me unless I wash your feet. Without my cleansing, you have no life. Well, Peter maybe smart guy here, sees where this is going and says, okay, 
And we read his response beginning in verse 9. Simon Peter says to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Okay, if, if I need your cleansing to have life, to, be a part, to, to belong to you, then here I am. Cleanse me. And Jesus says to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, you are not all clean. So Jesus tells Peter, a bathed individual doesn't need another bath, but only needs his feet washed. Now, this this verse here uh, is there's a lot of ink spilled over what this verse means and the reason why is because the phrase except for your feet doesn't appear in all of the early manuscripts and so there's great debate as to whether or not it should be there i'm i'm going to spare you the pages and pages i've read in debate over this and just i think suffice to say here what jesus is explaining to peter is that hey peter you've already bathed so I'm not going to wash you again, but I am going to wash your feet. So I think in light of that, we can certainly see that the phrase fits. But what is Jesus saying here? He says, you're already clean, but I need to wash your feet. Well, in order to, I think, understand this, we need to look at who Peter is. Okay, we've, we've got to know Peter a lot through uh, the Gospels. And Peter is, is quite a character, uh, sometimes opening his mouth and saying things maybe that weren't necessarily well thought out. But he also, in what he has said throughout the Scriptures, has expressed a heart of faith in Christ. In John chapter 6, after Jesus has this monologue where he explains that I am the bread of life, if you want life in me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. We read in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, not referencing the 12, but others who were following Jesus at this time. And in verse 67 Jesus said to his twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In Matthew 16, 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ." the Son of God. And these maybe words uh, fall off our tongues rather quickly in this day and age, but for them, Peter is saying, you are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You are God. Come in the flesh. You have come to save us from our sins. And while Peter didn't fully understand this, he didn't understand the death and the resurrection that was required in the forgiveness of our sins, he was placing his faith in Christ. And that faith in Christ cleansed him. And so Jesus can say to him and to the other disciples, because the you in this verse is plural, saying, you disciples, because of your faith, are clean. But not every one of you. 
And in this, Jesus, Jesus is referring to Judas as he explains to Peter that not everyone in the room is clean. So we can see here that while the foot washing is symbolic of the cleansing that is to come, it is not saving in and of itself. Jesus washes Judas' feet, but he isn't clean. Faith in Christ and what he has done is the only way to save, is the only one to have eternal life. And since Judas did not believe, he was not clean. Are you? I want us to stop here and just think a little bit on the life of Judas. Judas has just spent the last three years or more following Jesus. He's been involved in the ministry that Jesus has had. He has seen the miracles that Jesus has performed. When Jesus sent his disciples out to share the news of the the kingdom with the people throughout the region, and when they came back and talked about how God had used them, Judas was among those people. And yet Judas never believed. So I think that's a really really strong picture for us to think about. And, And the question is, how about you? I'm not asking you if you're a faithful attender of church. And I'm not asking you if you've participated in ministries or even if you've shared Jesus with someone. I'm asking you if you've understood that your sin has eternal consequences and that you can do nothing about it on your own and that your only hope is found in Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross to save you from your sins. Have you placed your faith, have you put your trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation of those sins? If that's not you, then maybe you're just like Judas, among good people, maybe doing some good things in the world, but you're still dead in your sin. And if that is you, then I would encourage you to consider the words of Peter as he expressed his faith in Christ. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. He is God, the perfect and holy creator. And he has come in the flesh to die on the cross for our sins. And I would encourage you to place your trust in his work, not on your own, but on his work for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you have questions about that, I would love to talk to you about that. There are men and women in this church who would love to talk with you about Jesus Christ this morning. I would encourage you, reach out and talk with someone about how you can find hope in Jesus Christ, how you can find the cleansing that comes from His love. So we see here point one, that His love cleanses us from sin. But then as cleansed sinners, his love calls us to fight for sin, fight against sin in pursuit of faithful living. And we see this again as as in this discussion with Peter, you are clean, but I'm still going to wash your feet. And so what is this pointing out here? Jesus says, I'm going to wash your feet as a sign of my humble love that saves you. But 
Peter, you're already clean because of your faith in that, except for your feet. Well, in order to maybe kind of get a grasp of what this means, I, I want us to again just look briefly into the book of Philippians where Paul continues in the third chapter. And he says his desire is to know him, him being Jesus Christ, and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I think what Jesus is is suggesting here with the washing of the feet and what Paul is talking about here in Philippians is the same thing. Paul, Paul says, Christ Jesus has made me his own. I have been cleansed in Christ through salvation. But there's still sin in my life. There's still areas of my life that does not know the power of His resurrection. And that's not meaning that I am not saved or that somehow Jesus' death on the cross wasn't sufficient to save me from my sin, but there's still rebellious, rebellious areas in my life. There's still areas of my life that I have not surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord. And I need to suffer to see that salvation transform me into the image of Christ. In that fight, there is struggle against sin. And as a child of God, we are to confess our sins to Him. We're supposed to turn from those sins in repentance. And we're going to, we are to fight for faithful living in our lives. And this is the picture of the clean man who washes his feet. So if you're a Christian this morning, first of all, we can praise God that through a single sacrifice, Jesus Christ has cleansed us from our sin. He has redeemed us. But there's still work to be done. By the power of the Spirit, we need to wash our feet. As His child, He's calling us to faithful living. And this is something we must suffer to to work on on a daily basis. It's not enough to say, I am saved by Jesus. I can live however I want. The power that saves us is a power that transforms our lives. And so we need to confess our sins to God. We need to confess our sins to one another. When I have wronged someone, I need to go to them and confess my sin. I need people in my life who are able to keep me accountable in my striving for faithfulness with Christ. I need to confess my sins to others. I need to be in the Word and let the Word of God have its effect on my life. I need to pursue righteous living with His saving power that is continually conforming me into the image of His Son. So as you look at the the foot washing this morning in John 13, I ask you, if you're a Christian this morning, are you satisfied where you are in the Christian life? I hope the answer to that question is no, I'm not. Jesus, 
through his love for his own, is calling us to continue to fight sin and to continue to pursue faithful living. And as, as Paul says in Philippians, I'm not there yet, and neither are we. So we need to keep fighting. So Jesus' love cleanses us from sin. Jesus' love calls us to fight sin and to pursue faithful living. And finally, His love calls us to follow His example of sacrificial love for others. Now again, we have to consider the context here. The disciples have just been fighting over who is going to be greatest among them. And you can imagine if they're fighting over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, they're probably thinking, I'm not going to wash someone's feet because that's going to make me look less important. And so I'm not going to do that. So there's this fighting over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus washes their feet. And this is pretty amazing to them. And beginning in verse 12, as Jesus sits down after washing their feet, he provides further explanation. In verse 12 we read, Then when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place and he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The sovereign God of the universe has just humbled himself to the lowliest of servants and washed his disciples' feet. And after this, can there be anything beneath them? Jesus is basically telling them, I, the master, have just done this humble act. Will you, the servants, be above me in refusing to do the same? I, the message giver, have just given you a message of humble service. And are you above the need to heed that message? In his act, Jesus not only demonstrates his love through symbolizing the cleansing that we have in his salvation, but he teaches his followers that this love that he has for them, they should have that same love for one another. Jesus' followers are to wash each other's feet. Now, some today take this literally and wash one another's feet in the middle of services. And I, I so wanted to wear flip-flops this morning so that if any of you wanted to actually do that, I was ready and willing. But Danielle told me I, it might be a little distracting to be preaching from flip-flops, so I decided to, to, to wear my dress shoes this morning. <laughs> but while some take this literally, I don't think that Jesus is seeking to establish another ritual that can be faked. He's not asking us to just add another good work onto our list that can be done with impure heart motives. No, Jesus here is calling for a heart orientation of humble service 
to one another. He's speaking here to their heart and their orientation towards one another. So as I think about this, this call to sacrifice ourselves, to love one another, I, I first of all just have to say, I praise God that by His grace in this church, there are examples of this very service. I praise Him for that. I have a few examples here. I'm not going to exhaust every one that, that uh, is, has happened in this church, but just a few that came to my mind this last week as I, as I thought through these things. I was reminded of two weeks ago when there was a complete deluge of rain right as we were beginning the morning service and we had ushers outside getting soaked to the bone to offer umbrellas to people so that they could get into the building a little less wet. <laughs> what a blessing. I think of this every time I hand Lily off to the women in the nursery who are enduring crying babies so that my family and other families can enjoy and, in, and engage in corporate worship without distraction. I think of our teachers, our verse listeners, our children's church workers, who are giving up the opportunity to in, in, in be engaged in a service here with us, they are sacrificing themselves to share the love of Jesus Christ with our children. Think of shoveling teams who keep our sidewalks clear in the wintertime. I think of our deacons, and I could speak for the next 20 minutes on, on the, the acts of love and service they do to us. There are so many things they do behind the scenes for us. I praise God for them. But I hope we realize that these are not examples of super-Christians who are wanting to just take their faith to the next level. Jesus has called each one of us to humbly serve one another. So if you're a member of Eden this morning, God has called you to humbly serve this church. So I want you to think about that as you consider the needs of others around you, as you consider the needs maybe of this church as a whole, would you say that there are things that are beneath you, things that you won't do? Jesus calls you to set that thinking aside and to humbly and sacrificially serve his body. Are you willing to give up your time in your schedule to serve other people? And that's really easy to do when it's convenient, but there are times when serving other people does not neatly fit into your schedule. Are you willing to be inconvenienced to serve other people? Are you willing to give up the opportunity to enjoy a Bible class or to enjoy a morning service to serve this church? And men, a particular challenge to us, but as we view the office of deacon... Do we see them as just a crazy band of men who have no life otherwise? Or do we see them as men who have heeded a call from Christ to sacrifice themselves for the sake of serving His people? While serving the church in formal ways is certainly uh, in line with what Jesus is talking about here, we know that humble service can also be done in informal ways. 
And so I want us just to, to maybe consider, there's, there's a number of ways this can happen, but just a few thoughts to encourage us this morning. First of all, if we want to be able to serve one another, we have to know one another. We have to be pursuing relationships with one another so that we can know one another's needs and then be able to reach out and meet those needs. And one of the greatest ways to get to know one another in the church is through hospitality. Inviting people over to your home, getting to know them, loving and serving them even by providing them a meal. But as you build relationships with them, God can use those relationships as, as both parties are seeking to love and serve one another. Families with kids, a particular challenge to you. There are singles in this church who are your children's aunts and uncles in Christ. And I, I know that and I appreciate that because I spent almost 10 years of my life as a single in this church. And I praise God for the families in this church who included me in their families and who loved me as their children, who, who treated me as one of their own. And so I'd encourage you, if you are a family with small children or large children, <laughs> invite these singles over, include them in family events. This will be a blessing to them. And they will have opportunities to bless and serve you. And that doesn't just have to go to the singles. <laughs> Your children have grandmas and grandpas in Christ as well. They have, there's other people in this church as well, but that is just one that I guess is near and dear to my heart and would encourage you to consider that opportunity to be a blessing. Parents night out, oh, what a blessing. As you have kids, it is sometimes hard to be able to spend time with your wife or, or women with your husband and just be able to enjoy time together for a few moments and to work on that marriage and for someone to say, hey, I'll take your kids for the night so that you can develop and, and strengthen the relationship in your marriage. What a blessing. But we don't have to wait until the next time the college and career does that. You can call up a family and say, hey, let us take the kids for the night. Go out and enjoy an evening together. This can be done on an individual basis and it will be a blessing. You can help someone with a yard project, help them with a house project. And I praise God, I know stories of this that's happening among our church. You can take someone from the, to a doctor's appointment. There are so many different ways that we can seek to humbly serve one another. But again, I stress, in order for us to do that, we have to know each other. So I encourage you and challenge you this morning. There are people in this room who are probably members of this church that you don't know very well. And you can't serve them if you don't know them. So maybe reach out of your comfort zone. Reach beyond the people that you interact with on a regular basis and seek to get to know people in this church. Now, is this simply about helping? Are we just trying to instigate a social program at Eden Baptist Church? It is not about that. It's about a heart that demonstrates self-sacrificing love of Christ to others. In fact, later on in this chapter, in John 13, 35, Jesus says, they will know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. 
So in these relationships, we have a chance to love one another, to build one another up in the faith, and to be a blessing. And in fact, Jesus says here, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. As we close this morning, though, this message is not for everyone. And Jesus points this out as he wraps up this section. Beginning in verse 18, he says, I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So Jesus is telling his disciples, this message is not for all of you. Though Jesus had chosen the twelve, he knew that Judas would not believe. He knew of his impending betrayal. Jesus gives them this information beforehand as just further proof. I am who I say I am. When these things happen, it will be further validation that I am your Savior. But as we think about that, there are people like Peter, and even the gospel writer John who was there that night, who received the word of Christ, who trusted in him for salvation, and they were received by the Father into his family. They were cleansed by his death and resurrection. They heeded his call to fight sin and to pursue faithful living. They did so through confessing of their sins, repenting of their sins, and struggling through this on a daily life. And they heeded Christ's call to follow his example of sacrificial love for others. So for Peter, for John, for the other disciples that were trusting in Christ, this message was for them. And the challenge for us this morning is, is it for you? If you're just trying to live a good life, I have to tell you, you can't gain life by just living a good life. You can't gain life by just trying to serve other people. Only Christ's cleansing can do that. Only Christ's cleansing can give you life. But as those who are cleansed, we can then seek to live holy lives and we can seek to serve one another in demonstration of Christ's love for us and we can do so for His glory. So as we think back to our introduction this morning, why would Darlene Dibler sacrifice herself to bring the gospel to others? It's because she knew her Savior. She was cleansed by that Savior. A Savior who washed his betrayer's feet. He was a Savior who sacrificed to share his love with her and then called her to sacrifice to love others with the gospel. And so our challenge this morning is, do you know that cleansing? And then if you are one who is cleansed by God, are you fighting sin in pursuit of holy living? Are you heeding His call to follow His example of sacrificial love for others? I hope and pray that our time in this text this morning would challenge us 
to grow in these areas. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, where would we be without your love? I am so thankful that by your love I can call you my God and my Savior. That I am a part of your family, that I have hope for life with you eternal. And Lord Jesus, I thank you that your call to us is not simply to trust for salvation, but your call is to transform our lives. And Lord Jesus, you have loved us greatly and have called us to share that love with others. I pray that these words would challenge our hearts this morning. I pray that it would call people from death to life. And I pray that it would call us maybe from, from slumber and lethargy in our Christian lives to heed the call to strive with all of our being to follow your example. Work in our hearts this way, we pray. In your name, amen.